0: I didn't have the muscles to even know what the basics were. So like, if you're doing first-time management, you're probably gonna set up one-on-ones. You're probably gonna make sure that your reports buy into the things that you're doing. You're probably gonna make sure that you're empowering people in the right way, but also like keeping close if, if things aren't going well. And none of those things were things that I
1: knew how to do at that point. From 2003 Media, this is The Ones Who Succeed. I'm Campbell Barron, welcome to the program.
0: My name is Dylan Field, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Figma. Figma is a collaborative design platform.
1: We're trying to make it so that anyone can access creativity and design. Today on the show, I'm thrilled to have a conversation with Dylan Field. Now Dylan's story is fascinating to me. On the outside it's your quintessential Silicon Valley success story. A young founder has an idea for a product, they drop out of college, raise some VC money, and a few years later they're the CEO of a unicorn, a private company worth over a billion dollars that employs hundreds and disrupts an industry. It's a classic 10-year overnight success. The protagonist in this case is Dylan Field, who at age 19 dropped out of Brown University to become a Teal Fellow, program started by billionaire tech entrepreneur Peter Thiel, offered to a select group of hungry entrepreneurs looking to make it big in the world of tech. And that is very much what happened in Dylan's case. After he dropped out of college and became a Thiel Fellow, he raised $4 million to start Figma, a web-based graphics editor and prototyping tool trusted by companies like Slack, Twitter, Dropbox, Square, and the New York Times. Needless to say, that $4 million helped kickstart a unicorn, as Figma's latest $50 million funding round values the company at over $2 billion. So what can we learn from Dylan and his story? How does a 19-year-old dropout go on to disrupt the collaborative design industry, all while building a unicorn in the process? That is what I wanted to find out. You don't want to miss this one. My conversation with Dylan Field starts now. and i figured if we could just start uh, maybe with a little lighthearted question here which is your twitter handle what is the story behind zoink
0: (laughs) oh man i'm gonna have to go on the record on this one okay so well first of all it's a great sound it's a great noise but you remember it oh yeah exactly it was actually a sort of half-hearted attempt at a company i Was trying to start in college and at the time there's like Zynga, which you had something to do with Mark Pink's dog, I think. And I was like, oh, that's kind of a cool idea. My dog's name was Zoe. And so I had Zoe Inc. Zoink, but with a K because it sounded cooler. And then the company didn't work out, but the Twitter handle stayed.
1: I mean, you, that's an OG. That's what you'd consider an OG handle. So I guess it was a win in the end, and it worked out for you just fine. If you can walk me through the series of events that led you to drop out of college and become a Teal Fellow, what did your life look like right before that?
0: <laughs> well, I was at Brown and... I had done a few internships at that point. I in high school I'd worked at O'Reilly Media. In college, I worked at Microsoft Research, but also at LinkedIn and Flipboard twice mm-hmm. actually. And I started realizing that I wasn't sure if I wanted to study computer science or not. I love computer science, I love coding, but I wasn't sure if I ultimately wanted to be an engineer. Mm-hmm. And you know, college is such a valuable, valuable time. And I wanted to make sure I was making best use of it. So I thought, okay, I'll take six months off. This is my junior fall. I thought I'll finish my junior fall and I'll take six months off to intern at Flipboard again. This time I'm in a design role. They're willing to have me as a design intern, which I thought was wild. And so I I went back, was about to go back to intern there. And before I did, I talked with my now co-founder, Evan, who at the time is my TA and friend. And we started talking about would we ever start a company together? Just kind of a, as like a fun dinner conversation.
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: Evan said, yeah, well, I'm I'm pretty interested in doing that someday because I just think that most jobs will be boring. <laughs> and, and he was right, by the way. Evan's a genius. And probably any other job that he would have had would have been very boring for him. And so we just kept talking about it. And I, in the meantime, I just met this guy named Dale Stevens. And Dale is somebody who was the founder of something called UnCollege, which was sort of out of the unschooling mo- movement. And he wrote a book on it and, you know, is was trying to do like sort of a gap year program. And uh, Dale was in Providence for some reason. I don't remember why, maybe it's a conference he was talking at. And Elizabeth Stark, who's now from Lightning Labs, but before then she was doing more law stuff, had introduced us saying, you guys should meet. And I met him for all of five to 10 minutes and we started texting after that because he had to go catch a plane. And then we started just texting all the time. Mm-hmm. And he's like, Dylan, you got to apply for the TL Fellowship. And I said, first of all, it sounds crazy. Second of all, I not even start a company. But then I was like, well, maybe there's like a 1% chance I'll start a company. So, okay, fine. I'll apply. And I applied and I kept going through the rounds of the TL Fellowship interviews. And I just kept talking with Evan about what we would possibly work on. And meanwhile, we were starting to form our ideas. And so I think that we started to focus on what's the why now of what we're doing and mm-hmm we got really excited about a technology called WebGL, which is a way to use the GPU in your computer in the browser. Mm-hmm. And we thought with WebGL, you can remake and recreate any creative tool. And it was a question of like, well, what creative tool do we want to work on? Looked at 3D, looked at combinational photography, looked at photo editing, and eventually got to interface design. So eventually got the TL fellowship, but we already decided at that point, we we're going to start the company. That was now you know April, May, and I was very focused on, I want to keep my commitment to Flipboard, finish my six months. Evan was graduating and he had to uh, help his mom move. And so we finally got started on the company August 2012.
1: That's fascinating because when I was originally doing the research, it, one of the questions I had was kind of which came first, the chicken or the egg, in the sense that, you know, did you start Figma before the Teal Fellowship or did it happen after? It seemed like they were pretty much aligned uh, around up. the same period of time. It
0: ended up with a very good forcing function. Of, mm-hmm. I think it's like there's very few things that will... Forced you to kind of like iterate ideas every week. And it was a structured way for us to go intentionally make time for that exploration.
1: Right. That's very interesting, right? Because if you look at kind of your story on the outside, it seems like it's just worked out and it's kind of this nice graph look going upwards, your hockey stick graph. But that's interesting that you kind of hacked on some other ideas before Figma and you didn't have your necessarily a plan uh, from day one exactly how, how. Life would unfold. So, how quickly in that teal fellowship? I, I believe the program they give you around 100k. Is it 120k? It's 100k. 100k. Over two years. Yeah. Over two years. If you take your average 20-year-old or or under 20-year-old, you don't usually want to give them 100k all at once. I mean, 100k. I was about to say, like that's that's incredible. And 100k to really focus on a project. It's not even about the money. It's about the mentorship and opportunity. So, how quickly within that period did you initially raise three point eight million dollars? And I ask this because it was around that time when I think your name started appearing in you know tech blogs and in the startup ecosystem as kind of this young teal fellow, you know, taking on Adobe. So, so walk me through that period.
0: Yeah, so we were starting to consolidate on what we wanted to do, and mm-hmm. we're looking at sort of photo editing, then Photoshop in the browser, and then interface design, and I think we were kind of in the Photoshop to interface design period. Like we weren't all Interfaces I mean we were working towards it and we knew we had to run at the problem. Also, Adobe had just killed fireworks. And that was something that we knew was a product with an amazing community. And we thought if we can get to the point where we have a product that kind of competes with fireworks, did not realize how long that would take. But if we thought if we can just get there, then there's an amazing community that wants to adopt. And Adobe has made a huge mistake here. And so we went out to raise and it started in a weird way. I had actually, Jeff Wiener is somebody who has been really supportive for a long time in the company. And he had mentioned when I was an intern at LinkedIn, you know, when you start a company, let me know, and I'd be interested in, in hearing about it. Mm-hmm. His version of the story is, is much more compelling, but that's the one that I remember. And I emailed him maybe in February of, of 2013 and said, hey, you know, I ended up dropping out and starting a company. Uh, let's get some time to catch you up. And maybe it's March, I'm not sure, but we caught up and maybe a month later, maybe it was like April or May, I showed him some of the stuff we had been working on and he was just blown away. And he's like, Dylan, I want to, I want to fund this. I'll do the whole round if you want. I'm like, no, Jeff, like we should probably have some other people. And he's like, okay, well, who do you want to talk with? And I had not prepared for this question. So I said, okay, well, who do you think I should talk with? He was like, oh man, no one ever asked me this question. That's a great question. (laughs) So, okay. Um, And he then made a bunch of intros and some Mm -hmm. of them I also got through other people too, but that was incredibly helpful. Anytime you can get an intro from someone that a VC knows, it ends up being, extremely useful for your raise. And and all of a sudden we were raising money. And I wasn't quite ready for that, but we just went, okay, let's do it. I actually ended up working with, for our seed round, Danny Reimer. He led our round via index. Mm -hmm. And he was actually someone that I had known before uh, because he was on the board of Flipboard. So even as an intern, like don't forget that a lot of the connections that you might make through a company can be really valuable. So I went and Danny kind of like loved it right away and understood it. I think he was coming with a very prepared mindset of that SaaS was going to be extremely important. And we're going to be great businesses, but also a belief in creativity and makers and sort of a creative economy, if you will. Mm-hmm. And so all those things lined up towards Figma. And I think he even understood we were doing better than we did at first. That's helpful. Yeah, so we we ended up raising four million that that round. It's three point eight is actually the wrong number, but
1: $3. oh, interesting. Okay, so how old were you at this point? Nineteen twenty. I think I was twenty at that point. Twenty one. So you're twenty one years old. You you have a co-founder, and you obviously you raise this round of financing. You were essentially dropped into this leadership position with Figma. You didn't have any really formal education in management, as far as I'm concerned. How confident were you in your leadership abilities?
0: Uh probably more confident than I should be. I had leadership experience from clubs and from activities and stuff like that, but I didn't have any management experience. And I think that the the most important thing that I didn't even realize at the time was leadership and management are so different. Mm-hmm. And the leadership part was not the the hard part for me at first. It became harder later on as we grew. But I think in a small team, it's like you're just kind of working with people that, you know, it's, it's very collaborative and it's not like you're getting in front of hundreds of people. You're, you're getting in front of like, one or two or three people. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And you just have to, it's it's really more of an exercise in management in some ways. And I think that that was a skill that I had to gain in first. I didn't know what that meant even.
1: Is there anything you particularly remember struggling with in or around this period of time?
0: I didn't have the muscles to even know what the basics were. So like if you're doing first time management, you're probably gonna set up one-on-ones. You're probably gonna make sure that your reports buy into the things that you're doing. You're probably gonna make sure that you're empowering people in the right way, but also, like keeping close if, if things aren't going well. Uh, you're probably trying to set expectations correctly. And like none of those things were things that I knew how to do at that point.
1: In a TechCrunch article in 2012, I'm going to read a quote. And it said, Field would be competing with independent apps like Pixlr and juggernauts like Google Plus's new photo editor. And I thought that was pretty funny because I've never heard of Pixlr. And as far as I'm concerned, Google Plus' new photo editors and you know, how uh, startups make wireframes. And and so I think that really shows you like how quickly this industry moves. Was it always clear, though, what the product was going to be? So you mentioned there was a little bit of confusion there. So I want to kind of dive deeper. Um, was there ever a trough of sorrow for the company, as they would say?
0: Oh, absolutely. I think that the biggest trough of sorrow for us was when we were Uncertain of what we're doing at all. And I remember there's like one week where we worked on memes and we correctly surmised that memes would be big. And we also correctly realized that there was no good meme editor online. Mm -hmm. And so our our conclusion when we did not know what else to do at that point was let's go work on a meme editor. We spent a week on it and we built what was probably the best meme editor out there. And we never shipped it because after a week working on it, we're like, wow. Like we feel sort of shame and guilt and like, I don't know. You raised
1: 4 million there. bucks for this?
0: Well, no, no, I, I, I had, we hadn't raised the money. In this. Oh,
1: okay. So this is before. Okay.
0: Okay. Before, but I, I was like, I dropped out of Brown for this. Yeah. yeah fair. <laughs> fair. And it was, it just didn't make sense. I think Evan probably would have left like the, the next week if we had continued. So we started working on photo and I think what happened was TechCrunch had heard correctly that we had been working on photo editing stuff, but we were no longer working on photo editing by the time we they wrote that article. Interesting. But we weren't commenting on the article because we were like, oh, we're stealthy. It turns out that there's like a filing that you do when you raise money. Mm-hmm. And basically journalists will troll those filings and they'll just write about it as soon as they see it. Right. So I'm waiting for somebody, by the way, to like do a real filing, but to troll people with it.
1: I say. So what if you did like a
0: real filing and then you say, you know, oh, this is like, it's like Clubhouse for Cats or something. Backed so,
1: by Andreessen. Anyway. Yeah. If yeah.
0: you raise money soon and you're you're looking to troll somebody, well maybe it's bad advice, but I think it'd be funny.
1: So in regards to uh, in regards to kind of early stage company product market fit, et cetera, at what point did you decide to make the switch from memes or photo editing to actually like prototyping and user interface design because they are very different beasts and Canva comes to mind. The stories kind of sound very similar in the sense that they were also going up against a different Adobe product. What was the evolution then? Coming up on The Ones Who Succeed, I continue my conversation with Dylan Field. We'll be right back after this. Stay with us. You're listening to The Ones Who Succeed. I'm Campbell Barron. At what point did you decide to make the switch from memes or photo editing to actually like prototyping and user interface design? Because they are very different beasts and Canva comes to mind. The stories kind of sound very similar in the sense that they were also going up against a different Adobe product. What was the evolution there?
0: Well, so the of photography stuff we were doing was that was more like, can I take two faces and combine them somehow, or can okay. I make it so that, like remove the background from this photo and then like splice it in a different way? And at some point, we're like, okay, well, what's the ultimate way that consumers want to interact with content and create content? Like, it's pretty lowbrow, but memes. And so that's when we got to memes and we tried right. our thing for a week and you know the dark days of Figma. And then um, from there, we thought, okay, let's let's go try to build a photo editing tool because we see a lot of people. Uh, starting to take photos. What we didn't realize at the time was that the reason that people were taking photos was because they had a mobile phone in their pocket for the first time that was capable of creating high-quality photos. Mm -hmm. If you looked at the megapixels over time of mobile phones, they were going up, and there's sort of this concave up graph where over time, phones were getting more powerful. Camera sales over time, those were starting to go down over time. And we realized that, wait a second, we're in the browser. Our entire advantage is being in the browser with WebGL. So it actually makes no sense to have a browser-based photo editor if you're taking photos on your phone.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You'll want to have an editor on your phone We looked at the landscape there and we went, wow, this is already really saturated. It'll get even more saturated over time, but there's going to be a ton of different companies that are started out of these photo editing apps on mobile. And not only that, if we could maybe try to do something where we like sync photos to a cloud service, but they're competing with, you know, Dropbox, we're competing with Google... And we're also going to be competing with, you know, with the time there's companies like, there's one called Everpix, which we really respected. And we thought, this is not, this just seems already like a bloody fight. Like, we don't want to pee in this one.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: and So uh, we thought, okay, well, we still want to do creative stuff. We still want to work with WebGL. Then we looked at, can we build Photoshop with the browser? And we thought, okay, well, Photoshop is not intuitive to people because it's actually trying to do a bunch of different use cases at once.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Let's focus on one of those use cases, maybe two at first and then kind of go build out towards other creative tools. And then we realized that building a design tool in itself is actually a uh, quite a big challenge. And so we've been doing that ever since.
1: Oh, interesting. So what piece of software were you using to develop Figma, the photo editor?
0: Oh, it was similar. So it was just all in WebGL. This is all in JavaScript. We had at some point built a C++ sort of framework that, and by we, I mean, Evan, to be very clear, to basically make it so that we could like have the backup option if things didn't work on the web that we could also go to native, mm-hmm. but at some point we had to dump that. Uh, but we still built in C++ actually for a lot of our, our editor. And it was actually one thing that's been really interesting is to see how much of those early experiments were ultimately reused in the product. So for example, the meme editor, the tech we built for text editing was actually the first tech we used for text editing in Figma.
1: Oh, interesting.
0: Uh, a lot of that stuff ended up being concepts that were reused later.
1: So, there's some old comments in the source code. It's like insert meme here. It <laughs> might have been replaced by now, but at some point there were. Figma's product was really, really well timed. Like, if you go back to this period of time, 2012, web based collaboration, SaaS, like you were surfing all these waves. My question is how conscious of an effort was that? Were you aware that you were surfing all these waves, or was this just great timing?
0: I think there was some awareness, but minimal and definitely not like awareness to the point where you could create a thesis around it. So if you'd asked me at the time, is design important? I would be like, yes, obviously. If you'd asked me, should people be collaborating in the cloud? I was like, yeah, duh. Like I've used Google Docs all of high school. <laughs> why wouldn't you want that? Google Wave was also really cool. I don't know why people didn't like that one. I was really into it, you know, and and should more people do design work? Yes, of course. It's like, that's it's clearly how people will collaborate and communicate. And I think we thought things were obvious and we didn't have the ability to maybe storytell about why they should be obvious to others. So other people would see what we're doing and go, okay, well, collaboration on the web with, you know, with, with complex graphics, is that even possible in the browser? And we're like, well, yeah, we built it. But before people wouldn't believe me until I showed up and showed them what we had done. If I cold email people trying to get them to join Figma, they would just not reply. Or if I met with somebody, they would be in a state of disbelief and just kind of like looking at their watch until I opened up my laptop and showed them the actual product. You know, if I talked about real time collaboration, people would say, well, wait a second, designers don't want that. Like all designers want to work on their own.
1: That's so if we funny. Talk
0: about SaaS models, people would say, hey, Adobe tried that. And it's not clear it's working for them. Uh, maybe it is, but. designers are not happy with it, which is true. And I think if you, if you looked at like just SaaS overall, it was just starting. So it was very, very early at that point. And then finally, the market for design, there's, it wasn't clear that there were enough designers in the market and the TAM was, didn't seem big enough. And Mm -hmm. so a lot of people, that was the thing that, that VCs actually struggled with the most was, is there actually a business to build here? Is the market big enough? And we had no data. So (laughs) We're like, yeah, we think so. <laughs> um, but we were pretty bad at storytelling about all these different things, even though they seemed really obvious to us.
1: Mm-hmm. So that's interesting. So you basically surf this this conjunction of waves all the way to now. I laugh to think it's funny that people would, all those what ifs have kind of turned out to, to be proven wrong. But, you know, you are right at the time. Uh, did The web kind of had this slow reputation. You would need a powerful computer to run a powerful piece of software like, you know, Photoshop or Premiere, what have you. So I think that's very interesting. Do you, in terms of now, the reason I ask that question is because it seems like Silicon Valley and tech in general general kind of moves in waves. And mm-hmm. if you can time the wave right, you'll just have a better chance of survival. And oftentimes, company building is about you know waiting to stay alive so you can time the wave right. Or unfortunately, if you're on the other end, then you, you might be kind of brushed back out to see if we stick with that analogy. How do you look at timing waves? If you were even starting today, like how would you analyze kind of waves that, that you might want to surf? I,
0: I think that the interesting question is always, why now? Right. So for us, that was WebGL and a lot of other things too, but WebGL was one of the big ones. And I think that if you're looking at that why now question today, it's the way I look for answers is what are the technologies that are, are created now that weren't created before? What are the social trends that are happening
2: mm-hmm.
0: that, that will actually change the world or change the way people interact? Are there changes in preferences that people have? As a result of different phenomenons that are happening, or are there macro events that are occurring, which change the way that people operate or live their lives? These are all things that can point towards, or, or is there a business model shift that, you know, I think it's it's the, the rare one that is also interesting is sometimes there's just like such an unintuitive business model shift, open door being an example of this, where it you just have to have like a ton of capital, but like usually people don't have that opportunity available to them. And so I, I would instead focus on why now.
1: Mm-hmm. After you raised the seed round, your $4 million, how did you kind of put that capital to use? Just initially, like who were your initial hires? At that point, did you have product market fit? Would you consider that? Or were you finding it? Like walk me through that out period of time. <laughs> but, okay, you weren't even. Okay, so. Yeah, so, we
0: raised in June 2013, and we. They didn't actually launch until December of 2015.
1: So it took a while, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's, a, you know, it's a serious product, but that's interesting. That kind of goes contrary to, I guess, the lean startup advice that was going around at the time, which is like, move fast, quickly, you know, iterate, like, build a crappy product. Dylan, you shouldn't be proud of your first product. Like, how did you kind of deflect that with the culture and just with investors, et cetera?
0: Uh, I mean, we, we did talk to people. So it wasn't like we'd never followed any of the advice. We put the product in front of people. We just didn't launch it. And the more we put it in front of people, the more we realized it is not ready yet. And there's a lot of things that are not great here. And we also wanted to build something that was high quality. And so, so yeah, we waited and we, we built, but also that came with challenges. It was hard, really hard to keep everyone motivated. And it felt like a death march at times. It was, it was not great.
1: What about like in terms of investment? Because I take it that $4 million wasn't enough to push you over the finish line to launch or, what, or am I wrong there?
0: So we actually did raise a series A in December of 2014 from Greylock. That was $14 million. And I think that in retrospect, it might've been possible to even take the seed around to launch, like given how capital efficient we are. But the reason we're capital efficient was for the wrong reason. Like we weren't hiring fast enough. And now obviously if I could like, you know, do it all again and go back and like change everything sort of thing, not only would I try to storytell better, but also I would try to be more aggressive with hiring. And so I think we raised in the right ways, but I think we didn't hire quickly enough and I wish we had, we had moved faster on that and brought more people on faster because then we would be able to get to launch faster probably and also have more of a base to build on. But you know, it took a while for the culture to sort out too. And I think we, we didn't want to hire until we felt like we had a really strong culture internally.
1: What specifically about storytelling as a founder is so, so important that you think that you could have done better if you went back in time?
0: Oh, great question. I think going back to the conversation we were having earlier, we were talking about sort of the why now and right. also the different forces that were converging that made figma possible and i think that the ability to unpack those forces both for investors but also for people you're trying to recruit and also paint a vision of where you're going is just absolutely critical and so i i wish i had pushed myself more to try to untangle things because i had good intuition but i didn't know how to give myself the room to describe what I was seeing in the world and what we're trying to build and why it was gonna be important. Mm -hmm. And I think if we had challenged ourselves more and pushed ourselves more to articulate it, it would have been sort of like a, a power up, if you will.
1: Right. Because in the early days, I mean, pre-launch, like I take it you weren't the only person writing code or were you even writing code?
0: Tiny bit of code for a bit, but then very quickly realized that Evan was going to run labs around me technically. Uh, it actually had a bit of an inferiority complex for a while until we started hiring people and saw that he was, you know, running labs around some of them as well. And not because they were bad, they were amazing engineers uh, right. just that Evan was, you know, so super genius. Right. He was I great. quickly realized that like my time was better spent elsewhere.
1: When you launched in 2015, what was the initial response? Because I've heard a couple of stories where a startup will be in stealth mode per se and spend quite a while working on the product without, you know, mm-hmm. publicly launching it. And you know, the benefit of that is you can really like, you, in your case, you can talk to customers and you can, you know, iterate. The negative is that it does seem like there is a lot riding on this this launch moment at that point if you wait two years to launch it's not like you're gonna you know launch again in a week per se so walk me through kind of that period of time was there anxiety was there anticipation were you excited like how what was your mental state all right we're going to take one last quick break and we'll be right back with Figma co-founder and CEO Dylan Field that's right ahead stay with us This is the one to succeed. I'm Campbell Van. There is a lot riding on this this launch moment. At that point, if you wait two years to launch, it's not like you're gonna, you know, launch again in a week per se. So walk me through kind of that period of time. Was there anxiety? Was there anticipation? Were you excited? Like how? What was your mental state?
0: Uh, I was exhausted. I was very excited, and I was extremely, extremely nervous as well. And mm-hmm. the message that we had at launch was that design can be collaborative and that the web was going to be important for that. And yes, you need another design tool. And this is a point in time when, you know, for context, everyone was using the sketch. That was sort of the new thing. People were excited right. about it. And I think most designers didn't think that collaboration was a good thing. That hadn't happened culturally yet. And so we launched and the comments were very divisive. Some people were really excited, but a lot of people also said things like, if this is the future of designs, I'm changing careers. That literally, <laughs> a comment Jeez. on design about that. Or, um, you know, a, a camel is a, d- a horse designed by committee was another one we got. So it was, but I, I was kind of good because what I wanted to see was people having an opinion. Mm-hmm. And the thing I was worried about most was what if people are neutral? What if they're like, yeah, it's another design tool, whatever. So it was very divisive. Yeah, as long as you get like love and hate, uh, you're onto
1: something. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, many people say that about really controversial ideas like Uber and Airbnb. Or two kind of talked about examples. Um, yep. That's interesting that the that the rules still apply to a collaborative design tool because I wouldn't have anticipated that a collaborative design tool was very divisive. But you know, again, this is a, a 2015. Year. That feels to me, you know, recent, but it's it's a while ago. Like a lot can happen in you know, six years one of the core pieces that i kept coming up on when i was reading about figma was that figma is challenging adobe i've i've seen adobe mentioned in a lot of articles and i think this is very interesting because in my mind only in silicon valley could a you know 19 year old or 21 year old raise 4 million dollars and go up against adobe on the outside, that looks very irrational. They have all these resources, but this seems like it's the standard you know, innovator's dilemma. Today, Adobe is not your only competitor, but they are a competitor for sure. What was your thinking in regards to building the company and, and going up against Adobe? To what extent did you think about that?
0: Uh, tremendously. I, I think that Adobe is an amazing corporation. They're the leaders of the creative space for the past few decades. But if you're like me, you believe that there should be multiple channels for creativity. And I I think that it's really important that more people have tools and those tools are accessible to people. And I think that Adobe traditionally did not know how to take things like Photoshop, which are famously obtuse and hard to use for beginners.
1: Yeah, no, definitely.
0: uh, And get into design, get into creativity. And so I really was inspired when we started Figma. Evan and I are both inspired by Brett Victor, who made the claim that if you can't get to the point where uh, everyone has access to these tools, everyone's able to share their ideas. And that's kind of a moral wrong. And we believe that. And we thought, okay, let's figure out how to make these tools really intuitive and also bring more people into the process. And we just didn't see that happening. But said, yeah, of course, like we always assumed that Adobe would try to, once they realized this is important, they would try to do the same because they really have been sort of uh, the leader of the space for quite a long time now. Mm-hmm. Um, and and there's a lot of smart people there. So yeah, we've been we've been watching for a while.
1: So I want to I want to fast forward here, and I want to get to kind of more of the present day, which is I like to ask this question to entrepreneurs because it's so it's so different. All the answers are so different. What does a day in the life look like for you these days in 2021?
0: It's different every day. I think that some days it's very recruiting focused. Some days it's very internal focused. Some days it's very product focused. Or I mean, when near a board meeting, a lot of times I'm spending time. Prepping for that, which means writing my board letter and trying to figure out like what's the narrative, what's going on right now, Mm -hmm. uh, which I can then use back to storytelling. Back to storytelling. Sometimes if they were near a launch, like it might be more marketing focused. But yeah, I I get to kind of hop between these different areas and work on whatever needs me most at the moment, which is really fun.
1: Mm -hmm. It's a great position to be in. How do you describe your work style?
0: I'm pretty detail focused. I like to collaborate with people and to work and just be generative. I'll call people a lot. I think. Calling people is one of the things during COVID that people don't don't take advantage of enough.
1: No yeah. warning, just pick up the phone.
0: Uh, usually, I'll try to give people some warning first, but sometimes okay. I call if I see that they have some time on the schedule that's free, and I, it's funny because you know, my wife is sort of the opposite of this. She mm-hmm. hates phone calls, and I'll call her and she's like, why, "Why are you calling me? Is it an emergency?" I'm like, I "Just wanted to say hi." You know? <laughs> no, I'm joking. She doesn't. I, I I would text her first, but yeah, I, I will try to do phone calls instead of Zoom calls during a one-on-one, for example, which is scheduled, mm-hmm. and I'll do that because it's, I think, way less taxing mentally to be on a phone call because you're not trying to read the person's body language and figure out what's happening.
1: Mm-hmm. At the center of the inception of Figma is the Teal Fellowship. Mm-hmm. And Peter Teal in recent years has been a very controversial figure in Silicon Valley. And I'm curious, as someone who has been involved in that environment, what do you think is misunderstood about Peter Thiel?
0: Oh, I don't, I mean, I don't really know Peter Thiel very well. I've met him a few times, but I think that what's maybe misunderstood about the Thiel Fellowship is that-
1: Yeah, that whole experience.
0: Yeah, it's not all people that are these like alt-right folks. It's actually, I I know very few Thiel Fellows who kind of subscribe to those political views and Mm -hmm. people are kind of all over the political spectrum and- Really what's been created with the Teal Fellowship is this environment where young people can go and, you know, like I said, get 100K, get a community and go build something amazing. And and I think that people have not fully realized in the popular narrative how much that's actually impacted our business and our culture worldwide. You know, I think that there is so much happening with the Teal Fellowship. So much value has been created. I mean, two of the top five blockchains are, are Teal Fellows, Polkadot and Ethereum.
1: Yeah, it's like, crazy. Wild. Yeah. You
0: know, it's it's there's, there's several companies that, are, there's at least one public company, there'll be several soon probably, and there's been venture capital firms created. People have done fundamental research that's been amazing and has really progressed their fields. It's just absolutely amazing to see the diversity of thought that has actually been created through the Teal Fellowship. And I think that as a sort of commentary on college at the time, it was way ahead of its time in the conversation around student debt Mm -hmm. and around whether or not people should go to college and open up the question which is really what the tail Fellowship was designed to do, was put a lot of smart people in a position where they're not going to college and then they have these outsized results, perhaps that will help change the kind of cultural narrative there. And I think that the narrative is starting to change. I'm not sure it's because of the tail Fellowship. I think it's just because college is really fucking expensive. You don't want to go in debt for the rest of your life, but I'm, I'm very happy to see that's happening and people are starting to realize they have options because it's ridiculous to have a culture where everyone has to go into debt and you know, start their life that way. I, I think it's, that's totally unethical.
1: I think the fundamental idea here in regards to improving the education system should be that the idea that everyone should go to college and take on debt, I'm not a fan of. There should be an alternative route to the middle class without having to go to college. It's not realistic to think that everyone who doesn't go to college is just going to start the next Figma or even start a company. Like Everyone in the world probably shouldn't start a company. They might not want to start a company, and so that shouldn't really be the only option. It's more about how do we have these alternative modes of education that, that don't require a a major debt load?
0: There will be a lot of companies that are started that are not like the unicorn companies. There will be a bunch of digital companies, whether it's yeah. creating a podcast and, and actually building an audience and a lot of people subscribing to that audience or folks that are, are creating things or just like sort of a long tail of software that ends up serving sort of local communities or niche markets. There's so much to create around the world for that and the opportunity is immense. But as your, to your point, there's a lot of other things people should do that could do to to gain entry and be able to like support themselves that that are not companies too and so i'm also a really big fan of trade schools and i think that uh, there's way too much stigma attached to these things too that's one thing that i'm I'm sad about is that uh, there are these other options that are available that are not just like okay i'm finished high school i'm gonna you know a lot of people aren't self-directed when they finish high school they're trying to figure out what's next Mm -hmm. it's good to have paths available but not all paths should require a college degree there are other ways to pursue this as well
1: All right. Well, I think that's a great way to wrap up here. Figma is a very collaborative tool, and I would imagine that culture is collaborative. And as a result, I'm curious what your thoughts are in regards to remote work. You're based in Silicon Valley in San Francisco. There is this talk about the future of cities. How do you look at this?
0: I think that there will be a move to suburban and rural environments. I'm not saying everyone's going to move. I'm saying more people move over time. I think that COVID might give cities some hope, like San Francisco. It's kind of a weird take, but. Interesting. Going back to the Teal Fellowship, I mean, I, I talked to a lot of folks that are considering the Teal Fellowship, and one trend I saw pre-COVID for the year or two prior was that people were no longer in San Francisco. They were wherever they were. And when I asked them why not San Francisco, they said, it looked to me like I was crazy, and they said, I can't afford it. Right. Uh, even if I got the Teal Fellowship, I still can't afford it. Rents are too high.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And rents are still pretty high, but they're not as high as they were. And so maybe there's a chance now uh, because of COVID and people moving and a suburban trend for young people to still congregate in cities and for these traffic systems to still create and exist. But I also think that funding becomes more distributed and people now realize they can fund folks wherever they are in the world. And so it's not just about like, are you in the city? Can I drive to you? People are comfortable now with the idea of I can fund people anywhere. And so
1: mm-hmm. that will, that'll mix things up a bit, I think. hmm Is Figma going to have a flex policy post-COVID? Are you, is everyone going to come back to the office? How do you look at that as a CEO?
0: Yeah. If you Google future of work Figma, you'll see a whole blog post we did last summer about this. And, you know, it was kind of early on this early because at that point we didn't have many examples of our peers, what they're doing, but we had done a lot of work internally. I served a bunch of people and what I saw was that there were a lot of people that were starting to warm up the idea of remote, but not everyone was there. Not everyone's going to be there. And so we ended up on a flexible policy that was hybrid. And so either you will designate yourself as I'm going to be with a hub or I'm going to be remote. If you're at a hub, then you're expected to come into the hub two days a week. It was the same two days for everybody because you want to maximize serendipity and connection across the company. If you're remote, that's fine, but you will be pay localized. And that's been something that we've rolled out as a policy. I think in terms of long-term trends, I suspect that more and more companies will go remote over time. I think hybrid is going to be really hard. For Figma and for their companies, you know, we're gonna to have to work really t- hard to to make it work. But I think that you know, we're not looking at being fully remote anytime soon. We're gonna go back and try hybrid and see what we can do there and do our best. And then we're gonna do that across the world too. We're gonna to have a bunch of different offices. So,
1: mm-hmm. yeah, that seems that seems like the new mechanism that many tech companies are, are adopting. It will be interesting to see how it plays out. How do you look at your time at Figma? Is this your life's work? Is this one of many projects?
0: Oh, I hope it's my life's work. I feel so lucky. I mean, it's just like the chance to make design accessible to everyone. It's such a meaningful project. And it's such a, a meaningful thing to work on every day. And most importantly, the team that is around me, I I feel so, so lucky to work with. And that's the thing that makes me wake up every morning, just so excited to to come to work is or or get on Zoom calls or phone calls to really get to work. Because coming to work is a little bit different now. But uh, it's just the team and
1: and the chance to work on this mission. So... So yeah, I hope I can work on it as long as I can. If you didn't apply for the Teal Fellowship, what do you think your life would look like today?
0: Oh, good question. There's some chance that I still would be and back at Figma, but it's hard to know. Probably not not right away. I, I I had sort of a moment where like I was, this is why I took the six months off to go work at football the second time, was I, I felt like I would end up being a Google APM or, or something like that, or I would end up going to grad school or, and nothing wrong with either of those things, but just like, I wanted to have like a, a path that was a bit different than that. I wasn't sure it'd make me happy. And so I think at that point when I was considering whether to apply or not for the Till fellowship, I already was pretty certain I didn't want to do that. So I'm not sure where I would have ended up, but yeah, it's a good question. My interest could have changed a lot in that time. So if I had been back at Brown, I might've, I'm, I'm really not sure where I would have ended up. Maybe I would have
1: been a designer. Or maybe you'd or, be or using-
0: I a designer complaining about my tools. That, that yeah,
1: might be... <laughs> there <laughs> we go. <laughs> maybe, maybe you'd be starting Figma now. Dylan Field, I appreciate your time. Great to talk to you. It's great to talk with you and a big thank you for having me. That's Dylan Field, one of the ones who succeed. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this show, it would be great if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us out. Or why not tell a friend that also helps new listeners discover the show. I really appreciate it. If you want to see clips from the show and stay up to date with what I'm working on, you can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. I'm at Campbell J. Barron. All right, you've made it to the end of the show. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Campbell Barron. I'll see you next week.